All religion has a proneness to externality. When we're prone to conforming to the externals, what happens is the internal part of man dies. Some of us, we burned out on doing our best, which was never enough. I knew there's got to be more to walking with God than just trying harder and doing more. I went off to Bible college in 1975. Debbie and I got married. We struck off in evangelism, ministering all over the place. Harold was an evangelist. He was never a pastor. And so he told me from the very start that life would be different. We would be on the road, which we were. The first two years we were married, we traveled literally from coast to coast, sometimes twice a year. And we went to, I don't even know how many churches. After two years, my gas tank was running dry. I was at a low point. He woke up early one morning, tense, yelled at my wife. He got up and went out of the hotel room and slammed the door and left. He was gone for quite a while. There in the middle of that episode, I didn't ask God to help me. I didn't promise God I was gonna do better. I said, God, if this is all there is to it, then God, you can just have it. I sure never talked to God in that tone ever before, but I just couldn't take it anymore. I was just at a breaking point. So I began to tell God the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. I began to confess my sins. I said, Lord, I've lost my burden for souls. Father, I couldn't even care whether people went to heaven or hell. I said, Lord, I've been jealous of that other evangelist that's having more people saved than me. And you know, after about 45 minutes, an amazing thing happened. The light of God shone in my soul. And for the first time in a long time, I was smiling and I was happy in God. The joy of God had returned to my heart. I ran back to the hotel. I told my wife I'd made the greatest discovery I'd ever made. I found out you can be honest with God. When he came back, things were different. First of all, he apologized. I apologized to my wife which is a sure sign I'd met God in revival. And you know what? That was a beginning point. This honesty with God, this transparency, it set our hearts on fire. I sensed a new hunger, a new desire to seek after revival. Roy Hansen said, revival is the life of the Lord Jesus poured into human hearts. A man called Palmer said that revival is when God kisses earth. It's a time of refreshing, a time of renewal. It's when eternity is brought to bear upon time. It's been years since I've been in Northern Ireland and I'm so excited to be back. I begin to go over to Ireland at least once, most often twice a year for years, and speak at their conventions, speak at their conferences, speak in some of their churches. So a friendship was developed, and I began to meet uh, people who had the same heart for revival that I did. They began to talk to me about the 1859 revival and the ministry of W.P. Nicholson and some of the incredible stories that came out of those revival movements. One reason I was looking forward to this trip was to get reacquainted with old friends and to rehearse these stories that have been so monumental in my thinking and in the history of that nation. Reading revival accounts left me with this question of what can be done to spark revival today? 
Greetings. Harold, just great to see you. Well, yeah, so lovely to see welcome. you. I'll we'll have to get you a cup of tea now. Oh, tea sounds great to me. My first stop in Ireland was with Tom and Mabel Shaw. How refreshing it was to get reacquainted and reminisce about the things that we had experienced in the past. I'd preached in his church. He had come over to the States to preach at our prayer advance. And how encouraging to find a man who is up in age, but still has a burning in his heart to see God move again. Lord, we think of a generation that's growing up and they know nothing about God. They know nothing about your word. And we pray that you will come in Jesus' name and pour out your spirit. After having lunch with Tom and Mabel, Tom took me to the Connor Presbyterian Church, which was like the epicenter of the revival. It's where it began. In 1859, a great spiritual awakening took place in this very spot that touched the whole of this province, the whole of Ireland, and even touched the world. It was a period of great spiritual blessing to many. The pastor had been to New York City, witnessed the Fulton Street prayer meeting, came home and challenged his congregation uh, to believe God and to cry out to God for revival. Four young men took the challenge seriously. They began to pray and meet regularly, and they prayed for one thing, that the fire of God would fall in Northern Ireland. So the Puritans talked about a God drawing feelingly near. Mm -hmm. So that's what happened here. The sense of God, the sense of God consciousness yes. permeated not only the church, but the communities. Yes. But what about that God drawing feelingly near? The presence of God was very real. In fact, there were some factories outside the town of Balamina here that had to close. Uh, the people were under such a sense of God and the fear of God and the presence of God. And they were so convicted of their sin that they couldn't come to work. Mm. And the factories had to close. Uh, when you go up to Coleraine, you'll maybe discover that the, the local paper one week couldn't be brought out because the people who worked on it were so under such concern of soul that they weren't able to come to work. And uh, it was just things that stagger us today, but they were real and very important in the revival of those days. Uh, just God was there and wherever you went, you sensed God, you felt God. So how long did this um, continue? How, how long did this uh, linger? It, it lasted, well, the revival lasted about five years and uh, the results were amazing. I mean, church attendance started to grow uh, immensely. Drunkenness was an awful problem in the province. It almost came to a standstill. Uh, we were told that some of the drinking houses, as they might have been called then, uh, some of the men who owned them were seen taking down their signs. They were so embarrassed about their trade in the face of what God was doing and the spiritual interest in the, in the country. And the police were uh, in a situation where they had no work hardly to do at all. The country was so changed. People were thinking about God. There were so many converts at the Connor Presbyterian Church, they had to build a whole new building. Visiting these places where the Spirit of God touched down in revival power was absolutely thrilling and captivating to my soul. D.L. Moody said every revival can be traced to a kneeling figure. Spiritual hunger always precedes a spiritual outpouring. Harold, this is probably the most significant place in the whole revival story. This is where the four young men came every Friday night down from the village to meet together to pray. And they kindled a fire and they read two books, the Bible and George Mueller's book on faith. And they believed that God could send a mighty revival. This was the schoolhouse, but it's no longer a schoolhouse. It's been converted into two little cottages 
but it's a tremendous reminder to us of what God did and where it happened. That's fantastic. Those young men walked from town out here every Friday night and sought the face of God. And the 59 revival was born. This was the birthplace mm -hmm. in a red hot prayer meeting yeah. with young men with burdened hearts and a vision for greater things in their generation. Yeah. Praise the Lord. That's wonderful. Yeah. Small beginnings can have vast consequences. And what began with those four young men spread all over Northern Ireland. Next, Tom took me to Ahako to visit the Presbyterian Church where such unusual things had happened. The church building would seat 1,300 people in a very small town. People thought it was foolish to build a church that big in such a small place. But during the revival, 3,000 people crowded into this church hall. So great was the weight in the balcony that it began to sway under the influence. The people began to run out into the streets fleeing for their lives, as it were, but they were under such conviction of sin. When they came out here, the sense of God was upon them so powerfully that they were under such deep conviction of sin and a sense of repentance. They fell on their faces down on the mud and cried out to God for mercy. Didn't matter about the mud, they sought God. So repentance is a change of mind, leading to a change of heart, producing a change of life. So what kind of change and repentance took place among the people who got converted in this revival. Well, I suppose that was one of the most notable things. Their lives were totally changed. Many of them were drunkards and gamblers, and they ceased that lifestyle and started living for God. An expression that was used at that time was, so-and-so's got the change. And that was how they described the person who was converted. After having visited with Tom Shaw, I went to visit with Eric Stewart. He's a notable preacher and a historian on the subject of revival. He took me to some places in Coleraine where unbelievable things took place. So today, this is a very busy area, but what happened here that was significant? This busy location was all a green area just outside the ramparts of the town of Coleraine. This is where the awakening began. And it was right here on the 7th of June, 1859, that the first mass meeting took place. Some men from Balamani had planned to hold a meeting, not knowing that some men here in Coleraine were also planning to run a meeting. And instead of holding one there and one here, they came right here to what is known as the Fair Hill in those days. Okay. By eight o'clock, there were 6,000 people amassed here for the meeting that evening. Bear in mind that at that time in Coleraine, there were just five and a half thousand people in the population of the town. Wow. So the meeting was bigger than the population of Coleraine itself. Yes. Was the meeting evangelistic? The meeting was evangelistic. Yeah. And because it grew to such a size, they decided to divide it into four segments. Okay. And different ministers from the town each took a group and they preached the word. And it was because of the preaching of the word of God and the gospel of salvation through the cross work of Jesus Christ that people came under conviction of sin and fell down before God, and cried out for mercy, and they were appointed to the Lord, not just on the 7th of June, but also on the 8th of June. 
and we thank God for those very special days. The first week in June, 1859. What happened at Fair Hill stirred my soul. 6,000 people on the outside of a small town gathering to hear the gospel, that's incredible. On the very same day, students at the schoolhouse were brought under conviction of sin and were led to Christ as well. So huge was the impact of this revival that the town bought a Bible and they have it preserved in the museum to commemorate the impact of that move of God. You can see that Rachel's putting on her white gloves because we've got to be very careful how we handle the Bible any time that we have seen it. So how, how old is the Bible? The Bible was purchased in 1859, presented to Coleraine on the recommendation of the Reverend Canning, who was one of the Presbyterian ministers in the town at that time. So uh, it's been very well preserved, looked after very, very carefully. So the Word of God was essential in this move of revival here. It really was. What actually Rachel is showing us here is signatories to the Bible. You can see some of the, the names here. James O'Hara, rector of Coleraine, John McDonnell here as well, the Wesleyan Church, because all the churches were involved at that right, time. Right. Presbyterian, the Congregational Church was uh, in existence at that time in Coleraine, as was uh, the Methodist Church. Right. So they were very much involved. So a rising tide lifts all ships. Yes. So all of God's people with their different doctrinal persuasions were, were touched by God. Yes, it was all leveled out uh, at the revival. They came together. There was a great bond of fellowship. And one of the great things about the revival was that quite a number of women who had lived by their street life uh, were wonderfully transformed by the power of God and converted. And uh, that was a big change. And people going to church, people wanting the scriptures, and the dissemination of the scriptures became very, very popular right during the revival. There was a lot of people wanting Bibles, and many of the ordinary, everyday magazines and things that were on sale, there was no real demand for them anymore. Right. Well, every revival is a Bible revival, the recovery of some neglected doctrine or truth. Yes, and uh, when we move from here, we're going to go out into the public arena, out into the streets of Korean Town, and there we're going to hear a little bit about the actual ministry and preaching of the Word. It's here in the museum, but it's out there in the public arena. That's where it needs to be heard yes. and needs to be declared. Yes. It's an incredible sensation to go to the places where God has done extraordinary things. Eric, this is an incredible building. What is this? This is the town hall. It's a focal and central feature in Coleraine, and of course a wonderful place where people were led to Jesus Christ. It was built in 1859 to be opened in the month of June, but instead of opening with a grand dance, it was opened with people seeking the Lord. Because of the revival, this was a place where they brought the seeking sinners and pointed them to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's amazing. What about this cupola? What, what is this all about? Well, this here was dedicated to the town in 1880, which is just 21 years after the awakening. It was a place where people could come. There was a fountain here and there was water available. But on the reverse side of it, it's very interesting. You read the words, Jesus said to the woman of Samaria, whoso drinks of this water 
shall thirst again. But whoso drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst again. It was a famous drinking place, and people would come, and horses and carts would come here, and people could have some refreshment right here in the center of Korea. Living water. Absolutely, Harold. Yes, of course, that's what it is. So, Eric, revival has been described as when heaven kisses earth. How would you define revival? One of the things I had to come to terms with was how revival is used as a word and a terminology in the United States. We're going to have revival from Sunday next to Wednesday night. And that was a strange concept to me because to me, revival is something which you can't box into a particular slot of time. And it is much more an impressive movement of God that is supernatural. It's the supernatural invading the natural. It's a community being changed. Mm. It's lives being transformed. But I think even more particularly, it's a movement amongst God's people. It's the kindling again of something which is threatening to die. Yeah. Whereas the birthing of people into the kingdom is different that is the, the sequel to the church being revived. So any thoughts on sparking a revival in our generation? Any, any comments, ideas, suggestions along that line? Harold, I don't think there's any quick fix answers. Mm -hmm. uh, we can say that there are certain things that people need to be doing that prepare the ground. Such as? Like a heightened intensity of prayer that was evident before the revival and there needs to be an earnest calling on God and the Lord says if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways I will hear in heaven forgive their sin and heal their land there are certain conditions Charles Finney was a great revivalist and his revival lectures they highlight some of those areas of contrition, confession of known sin, humility, a unity of friendship mm. and fellowship, and a crossing over of the denominational boundaries mm. for the cause of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. These were some of the factors from a human perspective. Right. But of course, Reverend Duncan Campbell said, there is a place where the responsibility of man and the sovereignty of God meet. And God is sovereign. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that too. And God's work in revival is a sovereign work, but he blesses a prepared people and he answers a people who are ready to receive revival. Mm. I believe that. So the Holy Spirit groans. Jesus groaned at the tomb of Lazarus. The whole earth is groaning in travail, waiting for the redemption of the body. So about the only thing's not groaning is the church of God. Yes. Uh, what about that? Well, I think that's hitting the nail in the head, Harold. I would love to see that come back again, that we don't have to try to cajole people to pray, right. but that you hear of them pray. Like when we were young, half nights of prayer and whole nights of prayer, Mm -hmm. We're commonplace, right. and I think without that, we're not in a fit state for God to send an awakening. But please, God, 
he will answer prayer and pour out his spirit mm. in the latter days yes. on all flesh yes. and give us a worldwide movement of the spirit. And if he's moving in some places, why can he not move with That's us? That's good. That's good. That's yes. Good. But in Psalm 80, three times over, the psalmist says, turn us again, O God, and cause your face to shine upon us. And if we want the shining of God's face in revival, the church needs to turn mm -mm. toward him mm -mm. in sincere repentance, mm -mm. prayerful intercession, contrition, confession of sin, putting wrongs right, mm -mm. making restitution. Mm -mm. And he that has clean hands and a pure heart will ascend into the hill of the Lord. He shall receive the blessing mm -mm. from the Lord. Praise God. Repentance should be put on the endangered species list. It should. Why do you think that is? I think sometimes ministers and preachers are afraid that uh, they will be rejected. They want to preach a comfortable <laughs> message that doesn't ruffle too many feathers. But biblical preaching was very much a central feature of revival preaching the word with conviction, preaching for a verdict. Yes. And when God begins to move, it's amazing how it's infectious it becomes. You know, half of the commission to preach by Paul was to reprove and rebuke, but most places that's left out. You know, we have mild-mannered ministers ministering to mild-mannered people about how to be more mild-mannered. Uh, but what we really need is some fiery hearts from the pulpit that transcends and goes right down to the pew. We need a revival from the top down. What do you think? Absolutely. As goes the pulpit, so goes the people. Mm. And easy compromising preaching, a watered down preaching is of little real value. It'll not stand the test of the day that tries by fire. Ooh. That's for sure. And that, of course, keeps me constantly aware that one day I will stand before God and give an account of my stewardship. And Harold, I long that we might have men who will preach the word with conviction. Thank God for those who do. And we are blessed here in this part of Ireland. We are blessed with preachers who do mount the pulpits with burning hearts with sincere desire for revival. Thank God for that. We have a rich heritage here in our land, but our desire is that it would be everywhere. Mm. So, Eric, what do you think about revival in the last days? Harold, the Holy Spirit has not been withdrawn. He still is here to do the same work. The conditions have not changed. And if the church fulfills the conditions, we may expect revival. Mm. There is no point in going through all these motions without expectation, without anticipation. Yes. We need to pray, not just pray, but believing. Mm. And as we believe and plead the promises and hold them before God, surely on the honor of his name and for the honor of his word, he would be pleased to answer again. So prayer is the means of revival. That's a prayer. Yes, it is. God is the source of revival. Yes. We are the object of revival. Will thou not revive us again? 
that thy people may rejoice in thee. The consequence of revival is a joy-filled, faith-filled uh, heart that's on fire with love for Christ and people. Yes. Eric, these conversations have put a burn in my heart. I just sense a, a renewed fire glowing on the inside. And of course, that has to be renewed day by day. Yes. But we're believing God for something great in Amen. your country Amen. and in ours. Amen. We'll reach right across the ocean, Harold, and join forces for a gracious awakening and a movement of God. Yes. And we'll reach right across now. And God bless you, Harold, and be with you in your ministry until I see you again. Likewise. Thank you so much, dear brother. After meeting with Eric Stewart, I went to Bangor, Northern Ireland. Hi, Victor. So good to see you again. Great to oh, see you, dear brother. Welcome to Bangor. Thank you. There I met with Victor Maxwell, an accomplished preacher and authority on the subject of revival. We went to Hamilton Road Presbyterian Church where the Bangor Convention took place. People would come from all over United Kingdom and other places. They have the same heart to see God do something in our generation. I met Stanley Barnes also, a noted historian. We talked about W.P. Nicholson, he was an outgrowth of the 1859 revival. Such an uncouth, unusual character that God used in an incredible way. So why is W.P. Nicholson uh, important to the revival story here in Northern Ireland? The importance of W.P. Nicholson is seen against the background in that Northern Ireland in the early 20s was almost on the verge of civil war, murder, destruction, was commonplace every day. And Nicholson launched out into some gospel campaigns and revival broke out. Mm -hmm. And he took Ulster from civil war to revival victory. Multitudes were saved. There was calm and peace and settlement afterwards. Mm -hmm. And mainly it was because of his preaching. Mm -hmm. He was the greatest evangelist that Ulster has ever known. So W.P. Nicholson grew up here in Bangor. Oh yeah, he's, he was a resident in Bangor, born in Bangor in 1876 to be precise. And in 1891, he left Bangor as a 15 year old boy to go into the merchant navy uh, okay. uh, following his father. And it was a hard life. I mean, in those days he was a coarse man, knuckle fights uh, virtually to the death as it were. And when he came home, in 1899, he was really godless, but his mother prayed for him, prayed earnestly. And one morning when the mother was out, he had had his breakfast and conviction came over him. And before the mother came home, he was on his knees, weeping his heart out because of the sense of sin and the burden, the guilt of sin. And he trusted Christ the Savior in his own home. He turned to his mother and he said, Mother, I've just got saved. She says, when? She says, just now. I call upon the Lord to save me. And there was floods of tears and joy and hugs and God had answered prayer. And it shows you too that the prayers of a godly mother can be answered. And his conversion was so real, he rejoiced every day in God's so great salvation. So Stanley, after he found the Lord or the Lord found him, what happened next? He went on from that 
but he went into a bit, a bit of depression. He felt that he hadn't really got a victorious life in Christ. You know, he was a chain smoker, and if somebody was smoking, he would walk behind them, <laughs> and he would get a whiff. And he knew all this was wrong. It was all the flesh. And so eventually he got delivered from all that. He came to the place where he prayed before God and said, Lord, anywhere, at any cost, any time, I'm prepared to do it. Mm. And just with that, he, on the Saturday, he came to the main street here in Bangor. And there were the Salvation Army, only four Salvations, two girls and two fellas. And they marched down the main street out of step and with a tambourine that was out of tune. And Nicholson said it was the most ridiculous thing. And he felt challenged. He said, anytime, anywhere. And here I have to go to stand with these fools. Mm. He went, and when he went into the circle, the Salvation Army girl said, nobody's listening to us. Let's get down on our knees and pray. Mm. So he down his knees in the gutters, his trousers wet. He said he went down trembling. But when he came up, he came up in victory. Mm-hmm. He was dead to public opinion. Mm. He had surrendered all to God and God came upon him mm. and blessed him greatly mm. thereafter. Mm-mm. That was a key point in his life. And from that moment, he was filled with the Holy Ghost and with fire and power. And he was no respecter of person. He delivered from the fear of man and that was right, Nicholson, right till the day he died. And that was the beginning of his evangelistic uh, impact. Yes. He was asked uh, some time later. He went to Bible school founded by D.L. Moody in uh, Glasgow. And he was there with some very famous people, Jock Troop and other evangelists. Mm. And Nicholson uh, studied there for two years under some great man, Dr. Alexander White, he was nearly described as the last of the Puritans, and he learned much and he was taught much. After that, in 1918, he joined the movement of uh, R.E. Torrey and uh, Chapman okay. and uh, began to do evangelism a- across the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is until he came home to Bangor in 1926 and he was invited to do an evangelistic campaign. And God came down and blessed, and over a thousand people trusted Christ. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as news of that got out, then churches across Northern Ireland were inviting him. Mm-hmm. Uh, in 21, he went to Portadown, another provincial town. 900 people trusted Christ. He went to Lurgan, and 1,200 trusted Christ. And this went on just an amazing movement of God at that time. Somebody said that when the gospel uh, increases in polish, it loses in power. So I understand that he never increased in polish. He was always rough cut. People said he would have done better if he had been more polished and didn't use such rough language as his preaching. But then that wouldn't have been W.P. Nicholson. Mm. That's what made W.P. Nicholson. And uh, his ministry was mainly to men. His meetings and his preaching, he had men's meetings, and uh, men were converted. Men's meetings in the church, Stanley, or out in the open air? No, always in the church. Right. And he would challenge the men to come. He spoke the working man shipyard language, language, and people didn't need a dictionary to understand. 
So Stanley, my hotel room is overlooking the Belfast shipyard where the Titanic was built. I can see the two giant cranes still there to this day. And things happened under Nicholson's ministry that impacted the shipyard community and workers in a fantastic way. Is that right? Absolutely, because one of the messages that Nicholson preached was a message of restitution, that if you had stolen something or taken something, you had to make restitution and return it. And such was the volume of stuff that was returned to the shipyard. They had a massive big shed, and it was known as the nicknamed as the Nicholson Shed, where the stuff was stored that was returned uh, that had been taken. So, Stanley, I notice you have all kinds of materials and artifacts and letters and sermons, and this is a, this is a handwritten sermon yes. by him. Yes. I notice here a, a, a card, a Nicholson Mission, being convinced that I am a sinner, I now accept Jesus Christ as my own personal Savior and promise in humble dependence on the Holy Spirit to confess Him as my Lord, and this lady signed her name right here, dated April 12, 1938. So this was the beginning of the decision card, perhaps. That's uh, right. Fantastic. Yeah, well, this, this, is, this is all amazing here, uh, these, these artifacts that you, you've collected here. Somebody called him the tornado in the pulpit. Is that correct? That's right. That was actually Dr. Ian R. Paisley called him that. <laughs> the tornado in the, the pulpit. The tornado in the pulpit, and he was a tornado. But his language was coarse and rough and... Plain speaking. Tough when he was preaching. Right. But that's why he appealed to men so much. Right. And he would never have a choir. No. He would lead his own services. There was lots of singing. And he and, led it. And he led the singing. Right. And he was a small man, but he was a tough man. He was like the captain of the ship in the pulpit. He took charge immediately. These were not just gospel meetings or evangelistic meetings. Revival that was stirring among the people of God. And he would preach to the Christians, and he preached about knowing Christ not only as your Savior, but as your Sovereign. And he spoke in the consecrated life. And the key was that Christians would get right with God, that they would evangelize, that they would invite people into the mission. So he was a man of his times. How does that apply to us nowadays with our times? Well, I think there's certain lessons that we can learn. First of all, it was the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit that made Nicholson, mm. being filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm. And Nicholson put tremendous emphasis upon the person and work of the Spirit. I think of what the Scripture said, the words of the Lord Jesus, the Spirit, the wind bloweth where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof. You cannot tell whence he comes or where he goes. And that's a revival is not a two-week series of meetings. A revival is a movement of God the Holy Spirit. Right. When God is sending blessing, he, He's looking for a people. But all the times He's looking for a person. Mm. We speak about D.L. Moody. Moody said, the world is yet to see what God can do with a man who's fully surrendered to Him. Nicholson was that man. My hotel overlooked the shipyard where the Titanic was built. W.P. Nicholson's ministry had a profound impact on the shipyard workers. 
I heard that he would often go down and ridicule them or mock them and, and draw them to himself. And in turn, they would come to his meetings where hundreds and hundreds were saved. When people get right with God, they get right with men. And one of the earmarks that I look for in a move of God is that not only are people getting rightly related back to God, but they're putting things right on the horizontal level. Harold, we're looking at where the Belfast shipyard was, the largest shipyard in the world. And W.P. Nicholson, the impact of his ministry and the time of revival was such that hundreds of these shipyard workers were converted. And the impact was so great that they had to open a shed that was known as the Nicholson Shed, where the converts in restitution brought back stolen equipment, stolen tools, and God was moving amongst them. On the evenings of the revival meetings, why hundreds of these shipyard workers marched from here to the church over a mile away, led by the Salvation Army. There was a real stirring in the city. I've had the unique opportunity to meet many anointed servants of God. And what a blessing it is to know men like this that have such a heart for God and for revival. In loving memory of Reverend William Patterson Nicholson, John 3.30, he must increase, but I must decrease. Harold, that's precious. And also underneath is written John chapter 10, verses 41, 42. John did no miracle, but all things that John spake of this man, Jesus, were true, and many believed on him there. Harold, the passing of WP was the end of a great ministry. But you know, it reminds me of what it says in the book of Joshua. Moses, my servant, is dead, but arise. That is, Moses was dead, but God is not. And thank God that is true today. WP is gone, but our God is still alive and still active. The times of the Troubles in Northern Ireland were marked by political and cultural conflict. Acts of terrorism, murder, bombings, all kinds of terrible things were going on. When I went by the Peace Wall in Belfast and read the sentiments of people with their hopes for peace and for better times, it was just a cause of reflection on my own personal journey. Because in life, there's ebbs and flows, there's ups and downs, there's seasons of light, there's seasons of darkness. But the times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And we all can have personal revival anytime. When we're walking in the light like He's in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses from all unrighteousness. There's hope for a better day for myself and for everybody because revival is the answer to personal declension and depletion. Many years back, I was burned out, I was exhausted, and I found myself in a place of darkness, of discouragement prior to coming to the meeting in Champaign, Illinois, where God poured out His Spirit. It was a mini revival. It didn't involve the whole region, but it did involve a local church and a community and God touched my heart and the hearts of many others also. Well, hello, Brother Bob. Good to see you, Harold. I heard you were just in Ireland. Oh man, we had a fantastic time. And boy, was it encouraging and enlightening to hear about those stories from those revival days. 
you know, it reminds me kind of what happened here uh, back Amen. back in the day when we had those incredible meetings. You recall those meetings uh, yes, vividly? I, yes, I do. 2006. Yeah. Unbelievable. God met with us in a special way. Yes. You remember how uh, I came dragging into town on Saturday, just uh, beat up by sin, beat up by burdens, beat up by all kinds of things. And and you remember what you said to me on Saturday. You said, Harold, would you lead us in a revival prayer meeting? And I said, well, well I sure will because nobody needs it more than me. Mm-hmm. And then we went over to that prayer room over there, and I can't remember, 15 of us or something. And, and boy, did we ever get into business and talking to God. You remember that first prayer meeting? I do. It was on that Saturday night, September 9th. And it didn't seem very long, but uh, I remember praying and praying and praying. I looked down, and not just five minutes went by, two and a half hours went by. <laughs> After that first prayer meeting, when we unburdened our hearts, mm-hmm. and I unburdened my heart, and this went on for like the, the first week. We poured our hearts out, spilled our guts to God, confessed our sins, and we were bringing all the dark things into the light of God. And how the cleansing of God came, how the joy of God so flooded. It was, it was like um, heaven on earth. Amen. I felt like when we confess sin, God would take the guilt away and give us joy. I told God, I said, God, if you give me any more joy, I'm going to explode. <laughs> And I remember, I didn't want to read the newspaper. I didn't want to listen to the news. I didn't want to listen to the radio. I just wanted God that week. There was this um, desire not to hinder revival. There was a spirit of prayer on this place that was Mm. so unique. And you and I personally probably spent, I'd say, 30 hours, just Mm. us. Mm -hmm. Never mind the prayer meetings that were going on before the service, after the service, during the service. They were great days. We didn't have to drum up anything, work up anything, no. didn't have to try anything. There was a, a sense of urgency and a sense of desire. Mm-hmm. And the joy of God captured our hearts. Amen. It changed my life. It changed our church. It was a, a meeting that was supposed to last four days. It lasted 13 days. We, we would pray an hour before, and then we had the meeting, and then uh, we had testimonies that lasted sometimes over an hour afterwards. I remember hearing guys just crying out to God saying, Lord, forgive me, I have bitterness towards my wife. I remember another guy said, Lord, please forgive me. When my wife leaves, many times I'll switch the channel to something that's not good. I remember guys just weeping and crying. I mean, you did not want to leave the prayer meetings because there was such an intense desire to talk to God. Mm -hmm. And out of that, Revival, we had five prayer meetings a week that broke out. And and, and people from the community uh, began to come in, non-churched people who didn't look like church people, praise God, and they came into this meeting. Uh, There was a lady in our church that um, had been on vacation. When she came back, she said, Pastor, our church is different. I said, what do you mean? She said, our church is full of love. Mm -hmm. And there was a love for each other in this church that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. Like Ralph Satura said in the Canadian Revival, they were knee-deep in love mm-hmm. because the love of God is so infused into our hearts and it flows out from us to our family and to others and to the lost. I like what Tozer said. He said, whatever God has done anywhere before, he can do here. Whatever God has done at any time, he can do now. And whatever God has done for anybody, he can do for Amen. you. What do you think can be done to see revival in our day? First of all, 
God is the God of revival. I think God wants revival in our hearts more than we want revival. Mm -hmm. I challenge our people during the week, don't let revival happen around you. Let revival happen in you. The only person that's going to keep revival from going on in your own heart is you. Mm -hmm. And it's your sin. And if you humble yourself and become broken, God will bring revival to your heart. In Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says he's the Holy One. He'll meet with those people who are broken and have a contrite spirit. Psalm 51, verse 17, the Bible says the same thing. It's, you see that over and over again. God doesn't want us to be playing games. He wants us to be real. And I'm afraid too many times we play church. We just simply go through the motions. We come to church and we leave in the same condition that we came. And, and you know, we're living in a time where people have a hard time believing God for hardly anything. They think we're in the last days, the lights are out. Hardly anything good is going to happen from here on out. But you know, in Jesus' day, uh, the people limited the Holy One by their unbelief. There was such an atmosphere of unbelief that it hindered the Son of God from doing incredible things, even in his own hometown. So I think we ought to be believing God, expecting God, and, and, and anticipating by faith, thanking God in advance Amen. for these outpourings of the Spirit of God in this generation, right here and right now. I agree with you. Someone once said, when you work, you get what man can do. When you pray, you get what God can do. Before the revival took place, we spent two years in prayer on every Sunday night for revival. And I believe there's a lot of discouraged Christians, depressed pastors. Hey, we're, on, we're more than conquerors. We're victorious. Let's let the battle be won by God. We can't fight it in our strength. Too often, I think, that uh, the subject of revival has been a means to use God to salvage our freedom, salvage our economy, salvage our country. But don't you think we're at a point now where God's will, God's glory are preeminent, regardless of what happens in our country or culture, that the whole purpose of revival is to glorify and magnify Amen. the name of God and His kingdom and His purposes? Amen. We need to think about God's glory the psalmist said, revive us again that thy people may rejoice in thee. Yeah. That's what revival is about. It's yeah. about God. We're going to spend all eternity rejoicing in God. I warned uh, our congregation that we did not want to take credit for the revival. It was God's revival. Mm -hmm. Too many times we try to steal the glory from God. He shares his heaven with us. He shares his earth with us. He shares everlasting life with us, but he's not going to share his glory mm -hmm. with us. All the glory goes to God. Mm -hmm. You know, the Bible says in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy. So our God is a supremely happy God. Heaven is a happy place. And you know why? Because the sins are dealt with, wiped out by the blood of Jesus. Amen. No condemnation, but a total freedom and liberty to praise the Lord and rejoice in Him. Rehearsing the blessings that happened in Champaign, Illinois, reminds me of a conversation I had with Victor there on the dock overlooking the shipyard. Victor, how can we experience times of refreshing personally today? Well, the Bible reminds us we're to be instant in preaching, in season and out of season. But it comes down to individual. The, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is when God moves in a society, but that infilling of the Holy Spirit ought to happen in our lives, day by day, being filled with the Spirit and knowing that personal revival in our hearts. Only one thing matters, and that's the person and presence of God in Jesus Christ. 
Anything that God has ever done, he can do again. This recent trip to Ireland provoked me to believe God for bigger and better things in our day.